This is Chris Evans and I'm recording another Data Unpacked podcast. Today I'm with Matt Keep from MongoDB. Matt, good to see you. Thank you for having me on your show, Chris. Really happy to be here to talk to you and to your listeners. So we bumped into each other at reInvent in Las Vegas last end of November, beginning of December, I think we'd classify it, yep. wouldn't we? Yeah. And uh, it's quite, nice, it quite nice to be able to have a little chat in somewhere a bit quieter than the main floor, yeah. which, which, was, you know, which was good for a start. But also, we talked about a couple of topics, and what we're going we're gonna to discuss today is one of them. And this is this idea of managed databases, databases as a service, mm -hmm. and the, I guess probably what is now a whole spectrum of different offerings, especially from MongoDB, about what can, you know, what can be done. Sure. Um, we're going we're gonna to go and talk about that in a second. But just take you know, 30 seconds just to tell people about yourself before we dive into that. Sure, happy to do that. So I'm part of the MongoDB product team. Uh, I've been with the company for uh, nearly 10 years. As part of the product team, I work across our customers and our community to figure out what sort of problems they have, what sort of challenges we can help them with, and then from that, go back into our engineering team so that they can build and develop these new features and these new products and enhancements. And then I take it out to uh, you know, the marketplace, attending events like reInvent to talk about the, the innovations that have come through. Prior to that, I was a similar sort of 10 year plus tenure with MySQL and Oracle. So as my wife likes to tell me, I've been around databases for probably longer than is strictly healthy. Yeah, and now in IT, is there, is there an equivalent of like dog years and IT years? So would you say that, you know, 10 years working in IT is like 30 years working in any other profession? It, it, feels, I, I it feels that probably way. Probably is, isn't it? Yeah, 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 it feels that way. Yeah. So 10 years with one company is pretty good, I'd say. Maybe uh, I'm just dull. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you're just thorough and, you know, you get the job done. That's what I, that's what I would rephrase it. I think for me, I, you know, every application that's being built today requires a database, always has done, always will do. And data is at the heart of, of so much of what we do, especially within the digital economy and seeing how organizations have evolved their usage of data, especially as we go into the cloud and we start to instrument everything with sensors and IoT, just the opportunities that open opens up, it just keeps it a fascinating, fascinating space. And so that's what's kept me in and around this industry for, for so many years. And I think that's a really interesting way to start up the, the discussion because it is true that if you look back, you know, for a long time we had probably, well, actually we had something before relational databases, didn't we? We had, we had hierarchical databases. IMS, IMS and things, and things like that, yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, but but really probably in the last 10 years, or 10 to 15 years, we've seen the rise of a significant amount of open source databases. We've seen, uh, you know, different types of technology like Mongo mm -hmm. doing uh, document databases and a whole host of others. And as a result, we're now seeing databases as a service emerge mm -hmm. as a scenario where people actually are putting databases online or, you know, they're hosting them in the cloud. And it, it's it's quite an interesting sort of evolution, isn't it? You know, this whole idea of databases as a service. Yes. Yeah. In, in fact, Gartner, for the most recent year, they have data, which is 2021, estimates around 50% of the total database market now comes from database as a service in the cloud. So it's very rapidly become a standard and an expectation. Certainly for MongoDB, we launched, when I joined MongoDB in 2013, the only way you could get MongoDB was to go to a download center uh, or a repo somewhere, download the bits and run everything yourself. Now, uh, you know, a couple of years after that, we introduced MongoDB Atlas, which is our fully managed MongoDB database as a service, which is available on AWS, Azure, 
and Google Cloud. And in that, that period from 2016 through to today, it now represents two thirds of our revenue, over 67% of our revenue. And our revenue run rate is well over a billion dollars a year. So it's, it's really exploded in terms of popularity. We're actually ahead of the, the curve in terms of overall industry adoption. So yeah, it's becoming a, a regular staple of uh, the software developers toolkit. Mm. And you could do things like, you know, just spinning up a container. I, I did some um, performance testing last year where mm-hmm. we looked at a number of different database platforms and we did it within containers. Yep. MongoDB was one of the ones we did. And we, you know, the ability to spin up a container or a set of containers running a resilient MongoDB infrastructure was really simple. Right. And that's, that's unbelievable when you think about, you know, if you were looking at where you were as a developer, Mm, 10, 15 years ago, mm-hmm. the effort that would have been required to spin up a brand new database, maybe on a physical server, but eventually on VMs, mm-hmm. the landscape has changed. So people have got a lot, a lot more choice than they ever used to have. For sure. I mean, I'm, I know it's hard to believe, Chris, but I'm, I do remember the kind of build out of the, what you could call the first generation of the internet or web 1.0. I was at some microsystems in the late 90s and we were selling, you know, the first generation of internet was built on Spark and Solaris and Veritas software and Oracle and storage tech and, you know, EMC arrays, all of, you know, all, all of those arenas. It really wasn't unusual to walk in and talk to architects and developers and, and they were quite happy or quite expected to wait three, very often up to six months for new hardware to be delivered, which was then racked and stacked and available for them to begin their projects on. I mean, now with databases in the cloud, that six months can be compressed to six minutes, right? You literally go to the cloud provider, uh, select your home region, and then, you know, you're accessing MongoDB through the Amazon, the the Google or the Azure marketplace, call that up and, and literally you've got a database fully replicated across multiple availability zones with all of your security configured for you, the firewalls configured for you, uh, encrypting data in flight, encrypting data at rest, all of your backup and restore configured for you, all of your resilience, your monitoring and alerting, all of that's done for you out of the box and then it's automatically patched and upgraded. As, as, so as a developer, you don't, you don't need to think about those things and that means that you know you can devote much more time to innovating for the build business building those applications and so this is why this whole concept of, of database as a service you know has become has become so popular uh, idc estimates something like 750 million new applications will be developed over the next couple of years and so data developers are going to be pretty busy they want more abstractions they they don't want to be going down and as you say configuring ha and configuring backup and all the networking arrays and or storage arrays and networking they don't want to be doing that they need to be working on building for the business and so you know database as a service is a high level managed service is another abstraction that developers can just plug into they don't have to think a lot about the database they just you know focus on building their application and doing what's right for the business you gave me a few nightmares there, thinking about things like RAID 5 versus RAID 1 and all the arguments <laughs> we used to have about where you put your log files, where you put your data, uh, data files, and oh, I don't want to go back over that again, <laughs> I have to say. <laughs> that was a that was a funny time. Um, but you're right, you know, that the acceleration, the velocity has changed significantly, and that's definitely got to be one of the benefits of using database as a service. For sure. Now, you started to touch on some of the others there. For instance, things like the ability to do software upgrades, the ability to scale, but there's, I guess there's more to that, isn't there? You know, there's a whole discussion about billing, like anything in the cloud, mm-hmm. where you just use it for as long as you want and then shut it down. You know, I'd say there's, there's many, many different benefits you could actually look at across this. Yeah, um, you're absolutely right, Chris. So, so better aligning 
costs with the value that you you get from that software. So pay per use is a huge benefit of database as a service. You know, when we go back to the old on-prem days, and there's still a ton of software running on-prem, we still sell and provide and support a lot of customers who are running on-premise. That is not gonna go away anytime soon. But you know that the average server on-premise, even with virtualization, is running somewhere between five to 20%, right? It's, it's pretty low. So there's a whole bunch of capacity you're using there, which you're paying for, but not actually using. It's not delivering value to the business. It's not commensurate. Whereas within the cloud and you're paying, you know, with provisioned instances or dedicated clusters, as we call them, you're, you're paying per hour of usage. And we actually make that even more granular with an approach we call serverless, which is serverless MongoDB, where you're paying per operation. Uh, and so, you know, if you handle like a, a million reads, uh, it, you know, in an hour, you know, it costs you a fraction of a, a, of a penny. So you really are only paying per operation that you you run on the system. And so there's a much tighter alignment between value that your business is getting from that software and from using the database uh, and, and the costs that you're paying. The other big benefit beyond that better cost alignment is actually helping organizations manage risk. So, so what do I mean by that is that who is better positioned to run software for you other than the vendor who has created it, the developers who have created that software? You know, for us, we have several million customers running on MongoDB Atlas. We add 150,000 new database clusters every month. There is not a problem we have, we have not seen that a customer will not encounter, right? We have the deep expertise. We've dealt with pretty much every situation you can throw at it, which means we have fixes, remediations, operational workflows, which you know, customers themselves who, who are just using the software, you know, they might, might encounter an issue in like one in a hundred days, and then they've got to figure out what to do about it. We encounter issues all of the time because we know IT and applications and the, the world is extremely volatile. So we're constantly working around all sorts of issues and threats that we lock down and remediate immediately. So there's not a problem we haven't seen that we can't deal with for you. And so plugging into that expertise is another huge benefit. Beyond the speed and how quickly you can get going, beyond the cost alignment, it's really being able to manage that risk. And you know, it's because of that we have an, you know, an SLA, for example, of 99.995 percent very very high SLA because of the quality of the software and the quality of the the TSE organization the SRE organization the platform ops organization we have running our customers databases for them you know you look back at any organization you may have worked in I you it sounded like you you work for many vendors um, whereas from, from my perspective I work for end users so right. I worked in a lot of the banks and so on so from my perspective I look at it and think you know I started somewhere get some domain expertise you'd move on. I did a lot of contracting work. So I'd move between places and see many different implementations of things. And as a contractor, I'd use that knowledge to help me when mm. I went to the next client to say, well, I've seen this before. I've seen this happen. Mm. But of course, that takes time to build. And within those different companies, you never necessarily saw people who had high domain expert expertise right. because of the reason you just said, you know, the vendor might change their technology. Sorry, the, I should say that again, the client might change their technology put in something different. Mm -hmm. And of course, now they've got a new vendor to deal with, and they've never used that before. So they're mm -hmm. starting with that domain expertise again. So to a certain degree, outsourcing helps you in that situation, because now, as you said, you've got the benefit of the vendor to help you who's seen literally everything. Right. Yeah, but there's got to be a disadvantage to that. Now, the most obvious one to me is you're passing away a degree of control, mm -hmm. because you've now given somebody else that control, and you maybe haven't got all the nerd knobs to turn and all those sort of things to be able to dig deep into the 
configuration. Right. And that, that could be a good thing and a bad thing, of course. It right. could be a good idea to keep people keep people's hands off it. But there's got to be at least something you've given away slightly in order to, to get to that point. I, I think you've nailed it, really. You've given away a little bit of control. As you say, can you get to root on the systems that are running MongoDB? No. No, you can't do that. Some of the real in-depth knobs and configuration options that you have, the flags that you have, the different compile time flags that you have uh, on, um, uh, you know, version MongoDB you download yourself. And of course, it is open software, so anybody can go in, they can look at the source code, they can modify it, they can build it. You're not getting that flexibility when you're running on a managed service in the cloud. And that's why... You know, we are one of the fairly few kind of ISVs, I think, about our friends at Confluent in the same sort of situation where they actually provide, along with us and a few others, who provide complete optionality where you run. You can run a fully managed service. You can download the bits yourself and run it on a cloud provider, but, but you're running it. Or you can run it in your own data center. You can run it at the edge. You have this whole spectrum of different deployment environments that you can plug into depending on your your wants and needs. And there are some organizations that want to maintain control of everything themselves. There are some that are regulatory bound to do that at the moment. Though I think that regulation was is always chipping away and starting to lift. There are so many in regulated industries who feel they are being held back because they can't get into the cloud uh, in a way at the speed that they would really want to be able to do. But there could also be practical issues. You may, for example, have a requirement to, to put data right at the edge of the network, really close to users in an area where there isn't a cloud region or where you can't afford to spin data back into the cloud and then process it and send the results back down. It needs to be on site. It needs to be on the factory floor. You know, we have many customers who, who, who do those sorts of things, that real kind of edge computing right at the edge of the network. And so there are many reasons why a database service may not be the best, but you know, best option. I mean, we still have, even though we have 150,000 new clusters spun up on MongoDB Atlas every month, we have millions of downloads of MongoDB software. We have millions of, in fact, Docker, uh, the Docker site has stopped recording the number of Docker pulls there have been for MongoDB. It stopped at just over a billion, right? And that's still, those numbers are still really high because people want that freedom to run anywhere. Developers want to be able to pull the bits down very often and run locally on their laptop. They don't want to be, always be working with managed services in the cloud. So plenty of reasons why a database as a service isn't the right option for everybody. And this is something that developers and customers need to think about. You know, if you if you take you know, we have a very close partnership with all of the leading, you know, hyperscalers, but they will obviously have their own proprietary services. If you lock, if, if you go into one of those, you are locking yourself in, right? It, you, you know, it's, I'm not saying you can't get out, but database migrations are probably one of the riskiest migrations you can undertake in any area of technology. And so if your, your requirements change or regulation changes, how you decouple yourself from that gets very, very hard. And so this is where ISVs, best of breed ISVs such as ourselves, working in partnership with those hyperscalers gives customers a, you know, a freedom from lock-in that they wouldn't otherwise have. Yeah, I think um, you're almost describing the Oracle scenario where people, um, <laughs> you know, got heavily invested in Oracle and then getting out of Oracle and, and going somewhere else is potentially quite a challenge because uh, without going into the depths of different database technologies, there are components around how you do little things like triggers and various other features Absolutely. that are very proprietary to say the way that Oracle works and lifting those out and putting them into another platform becomes very difficult. So yes. there's a choice to be made there between trying to find, I think, something you can standardize on, which is a good choice. And you just need to understand the risk, perhaps, if you do want to go down the proprietary route. Sure. You know, that's that's a choice, but it's it's understanding that risk at mm -hmm. the same time. Mm -hmm. So you highlighted something very interesting, though, that that there is now 
a continuum, a continuum, a spectrum, a range of different ways that you can actually do this. So you can do everything from fully managed by the vendor all the way down to fully managed by yourself and probably everything in between. So if we use uh, MongoDB as an example, what what are you offering in terms of different options to customers other than the ones you just talked about? You know, self-download, Atlas in the cloud. Did we miss anything, do you think? We covered, we covered most of it. So in the cloud, you can have things like serverless instances, uh, which is really the highest level of abstraction. And that's a multi-tenant environment. You literally go to your cloud vendor, you know, your preferred you know, cloud vendor, point at MongoDB on their marketplace, and it gives you a, an endpoint, a URL essentially, where you, which is your work again. And so we automatically scale that up and down for you. So that's called serverless. Then we get dedicated clusters. That's where you get a little bit more control. So you can start to plan more of your capacity and what your exact configuration looks like. It will still scale auto, uh, you know, up and down on based on demand but you do get a little bit more control and your environment is isolated and for you know for a number of organizations having that isolation their own mongodb instances that aren't shared with any other uh, you know company you know it, it, it is an important kind of regulatory concern then you can download mongodb from our website and you can run it on the cloud you can run it yourself uh, all the way through to the free and open version uh, where you can download the source you can look at the bits you can compile it yourself run it on half your preferred hardware architecture if you want to do that so yeah and you can do arm can't you you can do arm for example oh for sure and we've spent a lot of time actually optimizing for arm but you can also run it on power right so you can run it on z series ibm if you wanted to and we do have a number of customers who actually run mongodb within an lpar on ibm mainframes cracking so yeah yeah, I mean, I'm not saying it's a mass market product, but it, it's something no, I think that... It's not, no, I think it's a good idea, though, because <laughs> those platforms, I think, are under undersold. I should give you a little um, highlight there. I started off in the mainframe world, so... There we I've go. A little bit of a, always got a little bit of a, a soft spot for anything that goes in there on the mainframe. Yeah, they, they are an amazing piece of engineering and, and technology in terms of what you can do. With, with, you know, with, with them. So, you know, since I came into computing years and, you know, more years ago than I care to remember, everyone's, yeah, people were always predicting the death of the mainframe and it hasn't, you know, clearly hasn't happened because there's such an enduring piece of technology. And it might sound off for someone from Mongodb to say, to say this, but it's the same with relational databases. Here's a, a technology category that emerged, you know, over 50 years ago and is still so prevalent because it is such a good strong technology and there's a huge amount you can do with relational databases we just believe that when you look at more modern application requirements where you're continuously integrating continuously deploying new functionality within an application and deploying it to an elastically scalable globally distributed cloud fabric you could do that with a relational database but it just takes so much more time and work and engineering to make it happen whereas a more modern distributed flexible database like mongodb just gets that all out of the way and developers you know we don't want developers to think about databases that's our job ultimately we're not quite there yet the industry isn't quite yet there but we're moving in that direction so go back to your original point you know mainframes and relational databases around for years will be around for many more um, but they're not always the right choice for modern applications yeah absolutely i think it's good that we have had an evolution i mean it's nice that you can look at it and think well you know an entire very sort of heavyweight relational database could be certainly overkill for certain applications so i think that 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 side of it's really interesting you know we've got a lot more choice now than we used to have so 
you know, if you want to go down the, the, the relational route, you can, or you could look at document. And it's good that you've got flexibility to do a whole range of different database types for your different use cases. Absolutely. I think that's, you know, that's, that's a good thing. So if you look at the way that your customers are, are actually deploying databases and using your technology, right. is it as simple as saying they want to do the database as a service stuff and serverless? at the front end of development or the back end of development, or do you see a complete mix? You know, is it by uh, use case? You talked about edge there, I think, mm -hmm. which is quite an interesting one. Mm -hmm. It'd be interesting to understand if there's a, a, a standard set of models or whether there's just a whole range of adoption te techniques that people use. I mean, developers will often get started with MongoDB by downloading it themselves and putting it on their, their local system, very often a Mac, maybe a Windows PC or Linux PC. And they'll do a lot of basic prototyping, learning, enablement there. And we want to obviously give them the flexibility to do that. We have developers who will create a whole like replica set, like which is like a three-node replica set emulated on their on their laptop, so they can then kill kill processes and see what the failover process looks like. That they love that kind of local control, that local latency. Once they've proven it's it, it's a good fit, then they they start to either move kind of on premise uh, to to larger servers, but increasingly that they're, they're building that you know, in the cloud. So we offer a completely free tier within MongoDB Atlas. It's free forever. You don't have to put your credit card in there. It's essentially a developer sandbox. And so a lot of development, a lot of development happens in there. And then as the application goes through tests, they may, and uh, you know, beyond unit testing into integration testing, they may start to use richer, the more paid tiers of MongoDB Atlas, where you have kind of larger instance sizes and more functionality until the point they get into production and then they'll they'll roll that into more of the production tiers. So we, we, we very often, for many apps, this isn't always true, but for many apps, we see local development on a laptop and then progressing through free tier into shared tiers through serverless and things like that. So we, we have a deployment option for whatever meets the customer requirement, but we have many customers who run you know, from the cloud through to, uh, you know, on-premise, Verizon has built out a lot of its 5G networking. For example, it uses MongoDB within Amazon local zones, which are, you know, right at the edge of the Verizon network. And they're pushing data up through some, a product we have called Atlas Device Sync, which push, pushes data up from the edge of the 5G network into the cloud. We have other organizations like HMRC, uh, obviously here in the UK, um, his Maj what is that? H His Majesty's Revenue. His Majesty's now. His yes. Majesty's. Yeah, Majesty's I always revenue, get that wrong. revenue and Customs. So for non-UK yeah, folks, that's the that's the tax authority. It's the two tax men, isn't it? It's what used to be the Inland Revenue and and, and Customs and Excise. That's right. They got merged together in oh, I don't know the beginning of the two thousands, maybe just before that. Right. I mean, I like to joke that uh, we have some of the UK's most unpopular apps actually running on MongoDB. Um, so all of your self-assessment and stuff like that runs on, runs on our platform. But that's taking data, okay. back-end data from you know, Oracle databases and putting that into MongoDB in the cloud so that HMRC can open up a whole new range of, of services against that. Before they did that with MongoDB, they were pushing about two application changes a year. That's all they could do for the very sophisticated and complex change management. Moving to a more flexible modern database, they're, they're now driving 50 to 60 changes a week. So it's an order of magnitude shift through both the cloud and through adopting a more modern technology. Uh, and is, how, is that how they've delivered um, making tax digital, the end of that whole thing of pushing us all to be submitting everything online and doing everything through the, it, the It's a part of that journey. There are a range of kind of more modern technologies they're looking at to, to enable those things. 
if we look at again another UK department, and I know you, your listeners come from more than just UK, but we think of Department of Work and Pensions who rolled out the furlough scheme. You know, with the you know the, the onset of terrible COVID pandemic, they had a couple of weeks to do that, and again they did that natively on on MongoDB because it gave their developers the speed, the agility, using a document data model rather than a tabular, rigid relational data model. You know, it, it's just a much more developer-friendly paradigm for them to work against. Now, you've, you've highlighted um, two great examples there. Mm-hmm. Two examples which I think immediately uh, the, the alarm bells for me raise uh, questions around security. Yep. So there's a, an instant thought to me about data at rest, data in flight, accessing date, data remotely across an internet connection to a client where potentially... Um, I want to make sure all of that data is encrypted, but of course I'm not the encrypting person now because I, I've got um, somebody else doing that for me on the cloud and you mm. know physically on the storage. Mm-hmm. How does it all hang together in terms of security and, and data encryption? It's a, it's a great question and it's a really evolve. It's an evolving landscape for sure. I mean, we've had for years in database technology the, the notion of encrypting data in flight, so it's in transit across the network and encrypting data at rest while it's in storage. So if someone comes in, pinches your storage volumes, then they can't get to the data. And we, we provide all of those and fine grain, you know, more fine grain root privileges. So uh, someone who had root can't get to the encrypt disks. They would have to have database access before they could they could decrypt the uh, data. But, but to be to be fair, mm. I think all of those things are great. You mm. know, I doubt very many people um, have a hacking exploit, exploit where somebody f- steals the physical disks and exactly. tries to access them, sadly. So, you know, once you're on that system, if you're in there posing as the application, or at least trying to pose as the application, you are not going to hit that disk encryption scenario right. because you're it's already coming up to a higher layer to you. So how do you get around that one? It is. So the, the, the kind of uncharted frontier has been how do you encrypt data in use while it's in, in memory and still make your application intelligible? And that's a technology we've developed called queryable uh, encryption because the encryption actually happens client-side. So data... Uh, you, so the application working in conjunction with the, Mon- the MongoDB drivers and SDKs, it never leaves the application in, in clear text. It's encrypted. It hits the server. It hits the, you know, the cloud and the database in encrypted formats. Through queryable encryption using technology that we've developed working with academia, and we actually made a quite strategic acquisition a couple of years ago using really sophisticated technologies called structured encryption, allows us to actually keep that data encrypted in memory, but still be able to query it and to run range queries against that data, still be able to search it. It means your database doesn't turn into a black box. Now, not every workload requires this, so it's something that's used selectively, or it's just used on selective fields within a within your data. So you wouldn't necessarily encrypt every field, but you would encrypt like something really unique to a user, like the national insurance number and maybe, you know, uh, 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 other highly sensitive parts but through technologies like queryable encryption we can keep the data encrypted server side it never sees the encryption key we never see as the provider the plain text data all we see is ciphertext the cloud provider that we're running on will only ever see ciphertext and so that gives a phenomenal separation of concerns and all of this is built on you know on industry standard like NIST uh, primitives but using uh, you know a, a specific proprietary uh, structured encryption scheme to 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 make this work. So it, it really is 
um, you know, a way. So when we worked specifically with Department of Work and Pensions, they had a policy whereby the government was saying, well, you need to get out of your on-premise data centers, move to the cloud. But by the way, you can't put citizen data up there that is in plain text format. So they kind of were stuck. So they started to do what we call application level encryption, where their developers were writing encryption schemes. And, oh, then, right. oh, and, and okay. that suddenly starts to get quite scary. Very messy. Yeah. Because... You can't roll out a new feature until it's gone through Security Council review. The Security Council only meets every two to three months, so you have a huge delay. You've also got some really smart developers, but they're not necessarily dealing with cryptography day in, day out. So there's a lot of things they have to do potentially could get wrong. So client-side encryption changed that. Queryable encryption in MongoDB changed that for them. They could work on that uh, you know, programmatically, let MongoDB drivers handle the encryption, let MongoDB drivers handle the key management, knowing that no data was ever leaving their facilities in a, in a plain text decrypted format. And so this was a way they were able to make the move to the cloud while still complying with those very strict security and privacy uh, requirements that were put on by government. I think perhaps that's one to have a, a discussion about another day, actually, yeah. because, you know, at a high level, it seems like quite a simple concept. But actually, when you think about it, it's actually really complicated because you're now passing data that you're storing and potentially allowing queries and everything else to that's fully encrypted as soon as it leaves the client. That's quite, you know, quite complex. So maybe we should park that and come back to that in another uh, like podcast recording because that. that'd be really interesting, I think. And I think that when we look at the, the public cloud and cloud offerings and services, just like S3 is finally implemented encryption by default <laughs> you would hope that we would head down that route for any service that we expose to um, a user across the internet because mm. it should be a it should be almost a default i know it's not necessarily required to be a default on every piece of data but bit by bit you know we we need to have those technologies built in i think for, for, for sure yeah i mean yeah, gdpr which obviously came into force in 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 europe back in 2018 you know it wasn't just more privacy that obviously that was it actually enshrined someone's privacy as a fundamental human right in the same way you've got a right to democracy you've got a right to justice you've got a right to freedom from torture so you've got a right to privacy and so you know it's really dependent on all technology vendors and any organization that is writing applications that are going to store users data to do the right thing by that and protect that because it is so integral to to us and we've obviously seen the war in europe ongoing now terrible things can happen and so uh yeah it's something that uh, is really focusing the mind and i think the eu deserves a lot of congratulation in getting ahead of this with things like gdpr the rest of the world has pretty much followed not perfect but getting there well we, i think we had to start somewhere and i think we had to start from a position of saying that actually your data is private now you need to tell me why you need to access it right or why you need to share it or why you need to do something with it not We've got your data. Come and tell us when you don't want us to do something with it. Right. Which is, you know, it has to be it has to be biased towards the end user rather than the other way around because yep. the end user hasn't got the power to go and query exactly what all these businesses are doing and understand it. So it right. needs a regulator to step in and basically stand up for for you as you and I as individuals ultimately. And, and that's one of the benefits of of we mentioned. I know we were going to park the whole issue of encrypting data mm. clients like MongoDB, but one one of the benefits of that approach as well as protecting data while it's in use in memory is that if someone does invoke their right to be forgotten or their right to erase you simply destroy their encryption key and their data is rendered useless no one can access it the organization can't access it because data leaves breadcrumbs all around right it's in logs it's in backups how do you 
erase that. You shouldn't be erasing backups. Yeah. That breaks regulatory requirements. And so, you know, some very sophisticated encryption te techniques can can help you with those things too. Absolutely. And you can't, you can't unpick backups and say, well, we'll take out all the stuff we want to keep and keep the rest because now it's changed. Right. Now you've broken rules of immutability and, you know, that audit trail that you want to make sure that that data never gets tampered with so you can prove it's the same data as it was many, many weeks, months, years ago. Yep. All of those rules sort of go out the window. So, yeah, absolutely. I entirely agree. So, okay, let's just summarize where we are then. So we, we've got a continuum. We've got technology to give us the ability to run stuff where we want. We now address the question of security and how we manage that. Now we potentially have customers who might want to move data from where they're running it today, might want to move data around their infrastructure. There's a lot of transformation work that potentially they might have to go through to consume this sort of technology in a different way. Mm -hmm. So what should the end user be thinking about? I mean, you sort of highlighted some of them. There was, you know, discussions about Edge might be more appropriate to run it locally because there's no endpoints there. Mm -hmm. But there's, there's still quite a few decision points, I think, here. There is. And we've worked with a, a number of organizations who have been looking to get onto a cloud journey uh, for some of their key apps and really helping them to make the decision on what to move and, and, and when. And so what we generally followed a very high level methodology is to start out with them doing a discovery process to, so to look at their application estate where their application is currently running what the costs are around that in terms of hardware and software licenses where that hardware is in its deprecation cycle and then what the roadmap is for that application is that something that the business is going to continue investing or is it something they're they're happy to ultimately let it die a slow death uh, and then from and that discovery sounds obvious but there are so many you know Companies can have thousands and thousands of apps in larger cases. That discovery is a non-trivial process. But you're, for, not, you're not wrong there. I've been through that process many, many times. Oh, you, from well, a storage perspective. Yeah. Oh, storage perspective. Um, I, I can't say specifically who, but I did some work for one of the banks in the UK where we okay. audited their Oracle environments and highlighted where they were exposed in terms of licensing oh. and all that sort of stuff. So. I've been through the pain of knowing what those sort of discovery processes take. And that's a lot of hard time and effort to get that right. And you then you end up with a massive amount of data that you've somehow got to pull into a format that actually has some value to you. And, you know, whether that's TCO or whether it's looking at the cost of it, the licensing, there's a million and one different parameters you could actually write down. Yeah. And on that point, there are three lenses that we really encourage our customers to look through. The one is the, the, the business impact of, of potentially moving that to the cloud. What, what will that do for the business? And if you can't really assess there's going to be any benefit, then maybe it's better to deprioritize that. You also look at the feasibility. So, you know, feasibility in terms of skills. Do you have the skills to do any kind of retesting and replatforming? And are there regulations you need to be aware of that could govern where that data sits or whether it needs to stay on-prem? And then the third lens, so we, so we talk about business impact, we talk about feasibility. The third lens we talk about is the financial constraints. What's the actual cost of moving it, will that cost you know, outweigh any potential benefit? And from that, that really helps you, from that discovery, looking it through those three lenses can really help you create a prioritized list of apps that you should consider moving. What you then need to do is to consider as you move those apps, are you just going to lift and shift them? So take what you've already got and just plonk it in the cloud. And that can be okay as a first step, or are you gonna do a more full transformation where you're really gonna take advantage of everything the cloud gives you in terms of scale out, elasticity, redundancy. So asking some key questions, you know, how often are we evolving this app? How quickly do we need to roll new features into production? 
What are the SLAs for the app? You know, how quickly does it need to recover if something goes wrong? How quickly do we need to roll it back? What sort of observability do we want on the application? And if, if, if you're high in all of those things, so you're going to be evolving it frequently, you're going to need high levels of availability, then actually lift and shift doesn't make any sense. You should really go for more of a full re-architecture where you look at maybe breaking that application down potentially into mi microservices or at least into a, a more modular form of a monolithic application. Microservices are pretty complex. They're not always the right thing. So a more modular monolithic application, microservices, maybe you're looking at an event-driven you know, architecture where you're pushing events through systems rather than use traditional request and response. These are all things that can help you make that more full transformation and fully exploit the features of the cloud. What we do see is if, lift and if you just lift and shift, your costs are likely to go up a lot because that application hasn't been architected for the, the, the elasticity of the cloud. And I'd also argue that actually lift and shift is a false choice because your data center is something you've built up over many years. You've got a lot of custom things in there. You are never going to get a 100% replicated environment in the cloud. So you're going to have to do a vast amount of testing and recertification to make sure your application, if even if you're just lift and shifting, can run on the cloud without breaking. That's an opportunity to start to think about a more full, fully you know, functioning transformation where you can move to more modern technologies, more modern architectures that really help you exploit the whole velocity, agility, cost advantages the cloud can bring. Yeah, I think lift and shift has has some benefits, mm -hmm. and, and I think they're very they're very narrow. So, for example, I've been in situations where we've looked at things where uh, there's been a requirement to basically build out a brand new data center. So, you know, Ooh. you're talking about tens of millions of investment. So, the ability to shove some of that workload into um, a cloud environment or to compress down some things by replacing it with what might be slightly more expensive storage technology, for example, but actually saves you rack space, considerable rack space, mm. you know, things like that, cost avoid uh, issues. Makes sense. But they, they seem to me to be more tactical issues rather than necessarily a strategic approach to how you actually change your business mm -hmm. you know you've you see this hard stop coming where you know that by x you have to fix this problem right otherwise you're in trouble so you do something that gets around it so you know lifting and shifting a load of workload to the cloud might be a, a good temporary solution while you actually then think okay we've done that now what now what are we going right. to do to to really actually implement the strategic approach so yeah, I, I entirely agree. I think lifting and shifting just because you feel that that's a better place to run something, it, it, there's got to be a really another underlying sort of scenario to that. And you know, the, the biggest thing, we talk a lot about technology and that's where a lot of people go, but there's the cultural transformation you have to drive uh, uh, as well. It's the people and that can often mm. be the hardest part of moving, you know, really you know, aligning the business about what it is you're trying to do, accepting that there can be failures and there will be failures along the way. So setting the appropriate expectations, giving people the freedom to, to experiment faster, potentially to fail faster, but potentially also to bring new people in, people who have got the battle scars, who have gone through. And that's where, you know, someone like yourself on, on the consultancy side would have been so valuable because you've lived and breathed some of these transformation projects uh, and you can inject some new kind of DNA and into the organisation. But we see the people the cultural shift can be, you know, as big, if not bigger than the actual technology shift. Yeah. Can you imagine telling all those DBAs, sorry, you're not going to have all those nerd knobs and all of those parameters you're going to be able to change now. You know, in fact, actually, do we need DBAs? No, not for not for the in installation, because we can automate that. Yeah, they wouldn't be very happy. But yep. I think that's, I'm using that as a facetious example. But at the end of the day, ultimately, you do change the way that people work, you do alter right. their, their working practices, you do have to give them perhaps slightly different focus. So maybe, 
you know, in that scenario, your your DBAs are more focused on the data, the quality of the data, the protection and security and management and of that data rather than Absolutely. is it sitting on the right physical platform, which by that point is already got rid of. You don't need to know that anymore. And doing things like, you know, is the schema designed in the right way? If we've got the right indexes to support these query patterns, all of those things, those higher value things that make a real value and, yeah. and, and advantage to the business. The, the other thing I would say, say Chris, is, you know, cloud is becoming so much more predominant. If we fast forward 10 years, 15 years time, how many people who are coming out of college today will actually have ever touched a server or a storage array and will know what to do with it if it landed on their yeah. desk, right? It's going to be pretty small in reality. I'm not suggesting for a moment that on-premise will go away and that there are companies who repatriate workloads from the cloud on-premise when they've got very predictable workloads and a lot of technical skills internally. But a lot of the, the, the graduates that are coming out now or the people who are coming out of school and going through training boot camps and things like that, it, they're cloud first. They wouldn't have a clue about racking arrays of, of you know, racks of servers and, and all of those other things and all of the things that go along Absolutely. with it. So, you know, we, I tried to, to explain to my um, my children about the idea of how cars work. So I tried to explain to them about spark plugs and when they were first learning to drive and, you know, here's how you change the oil. So the first thing I said was, we're going to look under the bonnet. So um, I, I thought I'll pick the simplest car we've got in the family, not the most complex car, which are all still petrol, not we haven't got any electric cars. But I opened up the bonnet thinking that there'd be access to change spark plugs and stuff like that. And I'm looking around going, can't see it. I can't and I, I couldn't get I couldn't get to the spark plugs. I couldn't get to anything. Right. And eventually I just said, Don't worry about it. Yeah. The garage will sort it. We've got AA or RAC. Yeah, exactly. Just call if if it doesn't if it doesn't doesn't work, just we'll call somebody. So, you know, we, we sort of accept that across the rest of yep. technology that we've, you know, pretty much moved on from where you and I might have looked at it a few years ago. Yeah. And you're right, I think it will evolve for those sort of people. For sure. So Matt some amazing things we've just gone through there. Really interesting to try and work out, you know, how we should help customers do that transformation process and all the rest of it. Mm -hmm. But let's talk about, you know, how can people learn more? How can people go and consume databases as a service from MongoDB and try Atlas? Point us in the right direction. Yeah, so if you go, to the good starting point is mongodb.com. Uh, that will point you across to the Atlas service where you can go and try it out on the free tier. Uh, as I say, completely free of charge. It's on AWS, Azure, and Google Cloud. So your, all your favorite cloud providers up there, we have all of the key services. We also have sample data. So if you just wanted to play around with um, some of your own data, you can do that. We also have the MongoDB University, which provides free, no-cost, on-demand access to a whole array of different training material from really getting started with MongoDB to understand why it's different from relational databases, how you query data, how you structure data, through to some really complex you know, topics of how you analyze data in MongoDB and do some really advanced kind of power machine learning models and rules engines and things like that. There's an array of different resources available, but mongodb.com is the, is the best place to go and there you can get started. Perfect. I recommend everybody does that and we'll put those links in the show notes. But, Thank you. you know, for now, Matt, great to catch up with you again. Um, not quite in, per in person yet, but, you know, again over, the, over the airwaves, but I'm sure we will catch up soon. Wonderful, Chris. And um, get you to come back at some point and uh, answer some of the questions around, I think, the security side, that uh, whole client encryption thing. I think we should, we should cover that in more detail. But for now, Matt, thanks for your time. It's great to talk to you. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to come along and talk. Thank you very much, Chris.